my friends sort of had like a mini intervention. They're like, you really like they've they've always, would always joke about they're like, man, like you really are out of control. Like you really push it too much. Like you should like control your drinking. So I used to bring a marker out with me and I would put dashes on my arm. And I was like, okay, a normal person has, you said three. I was like, a normal person in college has five drinks. So I was like, I'll do five. Basically, the next thing I know, I, I sort of come to and I'm in a jail cell. So Harrison T. has been sober since August 31, 2012. My name is Mike S. And this is another episode of Keep Coming Back, Real Stories of Sobriety and Recovery. So I think this interview was needed. And what I mean by that is, you know, I've yet to have a guy in his 20s come on who's been sober a long time, who got sober in college. In in Harrison's case, he got sober at 19, you know, and really explain, you know, what it was like being the sober guy in your fraternity, what it was like, you know, dating in your early 20s in New York City, all these different situations, which in my experience were just so drinking centric where, you know, I felt like I had a drink in my hand or a drug in my hand for, for all of these things. Um, so that's an interesting part of this interview. Also, going forward during the course of this podcast, uh, I've asked all guests to bring two topics to each episode surrounding sobriety that they find interesting, just to get a different perspective on things. In Harrison's case, we focused on, uh, one, romantic relationships, and then two, the idea of redefining success in sobriety. A couple of quick thoughts just before I get to the interview. If you like the content, it really helps make the podcast more discoverable to leave a quick rating and a quick review. So if you could do, much appreciated. And then secondly, you can always reach me with any questions. It's keepcomingbackpodcast at gmail.com. On with my interview with Harrison T. All right, so you're 26 years old. Yes, sir. Sober since when? Since August 31st, 2012, my 19th birthday. <laughs> wow. So that's the thing is like, if you ask me what my preconceived notions about AA were when I, before I actually walked in, one of them was that it's all old men for sure in trench coats. Yeah. And so I couldn't imagine anyone and I didn't know anyone sober even at 34. Yeah. And so I certainly didn't know anyone that was sober at 19. And if I had, oh, yeah. I would have been like, what is up with that? Yeah. So when you're 19 years old. And you have to get sober. Like, what is going through your head? Are you like, I totally got screwed? Yeah. I mean, at 19 years old, I definitely, it was definitely a lot easier for me to say, well, it wasn't really a problem. It was maybe something, or it wasn't a drug problem or an alcohol problem. It was maybe something more emotional, or maybe his parents are overreacting, or maybe the school is overreacting, or his friends are overreacting, as opposed to being, as opposed to looking at it from the standpoint of, is there actually an issue here, right? Do I qualify for the definition of an addict or an alcoholic? Yeah, I certainly didn't know anybody who, I didn't know anybody sober, period. Right, me too. Um, you know, there was addiction in my family. Who? Um, my uncle, my mom's brother, um, he, he ended up taking his life. Uh, he, he, so he killed himself by when I was 10 years old. and um, He was an alcoholic? Yeah, so he was a crack addict. I, I really didn't know him that well because actually in the last few years, he was diagnosed as schizophrenic. Okay. Um, and so he was always sort of not pushed away from us, but I think it was really hard. I think he had such low self-esteem in the, the last few years of his life that it was really hard for him to be around the family, you know, and he never got married and he was like this great looking guy and a people talker and a schmoozer, everybody's friend. I mean, he was like... The, the all-American sort of kid. What sort of happened was 
my mom, when I was a really young kid, would always say, you're just like David. <laughs> you're just like David. And I'm like, I'm just like David. Like, <laughs> from what I know about David, I'm nothing like David. Right. I don't have a fucking crack pipe in my mouth, right? I'm, I'm eight years old, mom. Um, <laughs> but it was like, it was like how I obsessed about things, right? Like, so for me, it was always clinging to something for my identity, right? So like, it could be sports. It was like Harrison, the soccer player. Harrison, the lacrosse player. And then it was, you know, things in school. I was <laughs> Harrison, the debater, right? And it was, it was. And just, you would just like become laser focused. Laser on those focused. Of, I was the same exact way. Really? Yes. With what? Like, okay, I'll give you an example. Like when I was like uh, 14 years old. So of all the instruments that were in my house, my dad, like he loved folk music and like yeah. Pete, Pete Seeger and James Taylor. And he had a banjo. Nice. Okay, and so like one day I pick up this banjo and I just decide on that day I'm going to learn to play this. And I all of a sudden am spending four hours a day in my basement learning to play this banjo oh, and I became just a freakishly obsessed with it yeah. for two years because that was the only speed I knew. Yeah. So I, I need to clarify that statement. For me, it was actually more so it, – it was throwing myself all into things, but it was more creating the identity that I was into things, right? So it was buying all the skateboarding gear from Zoomies and acting like I was a skateboarder and then not buying a skateboard, right? right, right? right. It, it was it, – <laughs> it wasn't – I wished that I could have been like you in terms of like picking up an instrument and practicing four hours a day. It was more so throwing myself into the image of what I thought other people wanted to see about Harrison. So like when I talk about David and my mom making my, – my uncle's name was David. And when I talk about my mom sort of making those statements, it was more so in relation to like how I basically craved attention, right? Like mm. that was sort of the, f that was the first drug. And and then it was food. Yeah. And were, my you, were you an overweight kid? I was, I was so skinny and so hyperactive as a kid. And then it was sort of right around that age where I just like something clicked in my head and I was like, I fucking love sugar, like more than anything. Mm. And it was sort of like that took me down like a very, very deep, long rabbit hole of just craving sugar and craving carbs, you know? And I'm only, and I still wrestle with it today, which I'm happy to get into. That's um, one of my, I mean, listen, I, I get addicted to really anything that I enjoy. Yeah. And I'm definitely the person at the table where I've like, let's please not get dessert because if I have one bite, I'll oh, have to have It's not fucking worth it. it. It's the same with drinking. Why the fuck would I have one beer? Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, why would I have one hit of anything? So then take me along, like, when do you discover alcohol? When you, what was your thing exactly? Alcohol, drugs? Yeah, so it was, uh, it was, it was alcohol, uh, but just as much alcohol, it was opiates for me. Thank God it never escalated to the point of, you know, oxys or roxys or, or heroin what or did anything you take? like that. It just started with Vicodin. Yeah, um, mine was Percocets, then oxys. Yeah, that, but... that's sort of where I crossed that invisible line, you know, that, that imaginary line into alcoholism. Um, do you so, remember the first time you took them? Yeah. <laughs> it was amazing. What What was it? I just remember taking them and I was like, well, one's not going to do it. <laughs> Two's too few. I'll just try three. And I tried three. And um, I remember like sitting back maybe a half hour later or whatever. I'm watching TV and I sort of melted into my couch and I was like, oh my God. You're like 14, 15? I am. No, I'm set. I am... 17 17 okay um and I, i'm a senior in high school and i'm sort of like this is i mean I, I i was partying and everything for years before that but this is when i crossed that line it was it was definitely with vicodin um and what happened was i took the pills and i was like wow like this should be an antidepressant like this is how they should treat depression um because i felt like it was this it was really like a whoa 
yeah. moment. And for me, I just was wondering, because I was like a anxious teenager at for that sure. stage. Oh, and same. I was, I would wonder, I'm like, is this how everyone else feels all the time? Mm, that's deep. Yeah, I, I, I didn't have that thought process as much as, well, I guess I, I had some extrapolation of that thought process where it was where it was sort of like, this is how I should feel, right? Like when I equate it to an antidepressant, it's like, oh, okay, I, I've been depressed for so long, didn't even realize how long I've been depressed or unhappy. This is the answer, mm. you know? Um, so when does it get bad? Oh. Um, you had a short run. It was, it was a, sh- so maybe I'll take a step back. Um, for me, I started drinking and partying like anybody else. Funny enough, um, I... You know, my mom always would say, "You're just like David. You're just yeah, like yeah. David," and so I, I knew that that addiction ran into my, ran in my family, and I never wanted to be anything like him. So I mean, I was I was a good student, and I would very much tell, um, talk to all my friends about how I would never do drugs. I, I was like, "I'll never even drink. Like, why the why the fuck do I need that?" Right. You know, um, and that's actually exactly what I sort of needed. And so I I drank, I smoked, I did it a little bit excessive, but it was sort of fine. But then when I started taking opiates, um, I mean, my story is basically I started taking these opiates. I started taking Vicodin. Um, I had surgery. Um, Me too. Mine and, was dental, but yeah. Okay. Mine's a very different surgery. Okay. Um, what was it? it, it it's a good, that's a good question. So I had what's called gynecomastia surgery. I had that. Shut up. I did. Really? You had man boobs? You were a fat just kid? Just one. No. Just I, one. I wasn't. Just one tit. crazy. <laughs> just one. What happened? Well, I'll tell you exactly what happened. Let's hear it. I was 14 years old, 15 years old. Okay. I developed one. I was skinny. Really? One man boob. And I went to the doctor. Right or left? Left. Okay. And I was like, what's going on? And I like, even like, I was like very ashamed to like show my dad or my mom even because I was like, what's wrong with me? And I would like, I was like, maybe if I work out hard enough, I can like even it out. For sure. You know? Yeah. And I would do that. And then one day I was watching, remember the show Inside Edition with Deborah Norville? No, too young for you. It was like, whatever. (laughs) O'Reilly used to host it. Okay, okay. And on Inside Edition, all of a sudden, randomly, he he says, there's this condition called gynecomastia and they're interviewing this guy and he has man boobs. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit. And I literally screamed, mom, get in here. And I was like, I have this. And then she Wait, took- Can you show me right now? Like, is it like a fist? Like how big was your one boob? I don't know. It, it was a, it wasn't like, I don't know. I was a B cup. <laughs> okay, you were B? I don't yeah. know. How big was yours? Oh man, I was definitely some double D. <laughs> oh, really? I, yeah, I had some saggy tits. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was there's big saggers yeah. i by the way i've never met anyone else who even have heard of this yeah 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 that's crazy yeah i mean every single time like i go to like an urgent care or something or whatever and they're like have you had a surgery and i and i say gynecomastia and i'm like first of all i'm embarrassed to say it of course right yeah. um not so much anymore because i sort of own it and i think the only reason i own it is because i'm not i don't look like the way i used to look anymore right but uh, yeah, nobody really has any idea what that's it is. crazy. Yeah, no wonder we get we get along. Yeah, that's why I love you we so much. <laughs> I mean, no, but seriously, I mean, I could do boots. I could do this entire podcast about my weight and my self esteem and about how 
um, how much having man boobs like really impacted my childhood. But by senior year of high school, I was 255 pounds and I had type 2 diabetes totally because of my, my sugar habit and everything. Were you like, I want to be skinny by the time I get to college? For sure. Exactly. Yeah, I, totally I want to get, get skinny. I wanted to get the surgery at the yeah, end yeah. of the year. I wanted to redefine myself. I would for sure be dead if I didn't have that surgery. Like I, Why? I because I really needed it for my self-esteem. I really needed it. Like, by the way, I, I had mine twice. Really? Yeah, because I, I, I wasn't. I was like, it's still too big. I want, I want to, yeah, take, take it down some more. Yeah, I mean, look, like I, I struggle so much with my weight. If I told you my weight timeline and how much it's gone up and down, I've cumulatively lost, lost weight, probably two hundred fifty pounds in the past eight years. Yeah, um, just like, yo, 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 yoing, serious yo, yo, yeah, mm-hmm. and um, I, and a lot of that also obviously is in sobriety because I've been sober seven something years. Um, but it was once I got, uh, Vicodin prescribed, you know, for, for having that surgery, that was where that line really fucking crossed, you know? And then, and so now I have the Vicodin and I, and a big thing that I would do in high school too, was I would really abuse any pills. And so in my medicine cabinet at home, you know, classic sort of Jewish Long Island, uh, first world problem, but um, everybody in my family had anxiety or depression. Yeah. And so there was a bunch of uh, antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication, and I would eat them like fucking candy, and then I'd drink on them. Antidepressants? Yeah. But, but I, I would, mean, those aren't, those aren't fast acting. No, but, I, but if you take 12 of them and you black out drunk on them, you're going to wake up the next morning, and basically you're going to want to spend the entire day in bed, basically sleeping, or you're going to be like pretty fucked up still the next morning. Right. And so I basically spend, you know, three, four days at a time in this like really sort of trance like state because of it. And that was it. Like I, I, so a big thing for me was I was suicidal by the age of 15. Um, I never was going to do it because my mom lost her brother. Right. And I saw how much that fucked up my mom and how much that devastated her. And I never wanted to cause that pain to my mom. And eventually, you know, eventually I did have my own suicide attempts right before I got sober. Um, How did you do it? I, the first one I tried overdosing, just uh, I was really fucked up and I drank two bottles of cough syrup and I I took, um, you know, basically like half a vial, uh, what was left of my Adderall and what was left of my Trazodone. So you didn't do something dramatic and like leave empty pill bottles in a circle around Mm -hmm. you and a nose. No, I threw everything in the corner Yeah, and I, and I had it on my laptop and I thank God I didn't do anything with it. And, um, and about a month later I was at, uh, we were at our formal in, um, in Panama city beach or, you know, for fraternity. fraternity. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, so we're in Florida and um, I'm ruining my time because of how much I'm drinking. Like I, I was a f- basically a full-blown alcoholic now for um, about a year and a half at this point. And um, and like, what does that look like? Like, what does what does that look like? Sure, full-blown alcoholic for me looked like taking everything and everything, uh, drug substance-wise that was available. Um, and were it, you like a, a fun drunk? I was very fun in the beginning. I was I was life of the party. I had arrived, you know, like I I remember being like five days into college at freshman year and I'm standing on some fucking frat table listening to Levels by Avicii and I've, you know, a handle of Burnett's in my hand and I've, you know, I think like a cigarette in my mouth, one behind my ear and, and, and a fucking earring, you know, yeah. and I'm like, and I'm fist pumping and I'm like, 
I fucking arrived, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm fucking Bill W here. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like it was, it was a great moment. And then it, it, I was, I was very polarizing. It went from sort of like, oh my God, Harrison's amazing. We got to have him at this party to Harrison's not welcome to my party again. He just hit on my mom. You know, he, he fucking punched through a window. He broke a bunch of shit. He took a shit in the, the flower pot. Like right. he, that kid's not welcome back here. Yeah, you know, yeah. it, it was very sort of polarizing. And, and towards the end, it was more like this kid's a liability, you know, which which resulted in. So you in, stopped getting invited places. Yeah. I, it was, I stopped getting invited. It was places. awful, man. I had no friends by by the time. Not I don't mean I had no friends. I had no home friends by the end of it. And I had very I had like two real friends in college. My experience was it was just a very slow. It, it, my drinking and drugging only really got real nasty at like the last two years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so for like so the last the two years, it was like a steady decline of losing girlfriends, losing friends. No one ever came up to me and said, I cannot be friends with you anymore. They would just stop yeah. returning my texts. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. One of the saddest things that ever happened was, um, so so basically I, I get the pills, right? I get I have the surgery. I'm a full, I, I become a sort of a full-blown addict mm-hmm. without wanting to be. And I knew it was bad. I was like, I'm not fucking doing this shit anymore. I don't want to end up like my uncle David. I want the rest of my life ahead of me. Like I was so miserable since I was a little kid. I really was maybe because of family dynamics, maybe because of, maybe because of my internal alcoholism or not feeling a part of, but I, I, I always identified when people in AA were like, it was sort of like God came down when everybody was born and he lined up and said, okay, here's the key to life. Here's the key to life. Harrison, you know, I'm skipping over you. You don't get one. It always felt like things were a little bit more challenging for me and I could never really fit in. And so I had to work extra hard. And, and so I never felt a part of. And by the time so I, the surgery happens, I think March, April of 2011, by the time of December 2011, I'm home on winter break. And it was so sad, man. Like nobody wanted to talk to me. Nobody wanted anything to do with me. And, um, so every day I'm, I'm drinking and I'm, and I'm drugging by myself. Just like alone in your house. Just alone in my house and in my bathroom. And, and when I would do that too, oftentimes like the eating disorder would come out, you know what I mean? And it was, and it was like, so it was a real disgusting mess of living in my bathroom, like smoking cigarettes, listening to Counting Crows, you know? And, um, and how how does this all end? Meaning like, how does this end up with you at 19 in a rehab? Yeah. So after that first suicide attempt, it became really, oh, my friends sort of had like a mini intervention. And they're like, you really, like they've, they would always joke about that. Like, man, like you really are out of control. Like you really push it too much. Like you should like control your drinking. Yeah. And I was like, it's a great fucking idea. I should control my drinking. So I used to bring a marker out with me and I would put dashes on my arm. And I was like, okay, a normal person has, you said three. I was like, a normal person in college has five drinks. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, I'll do five. I did five, man, and I'm fucking like punching walls. I'm like dying inside. I'm like, all right, six. All right, and then the, and I can't do six. And like this is all in one night. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm yeah. trying to figure out. I'm like, finally, I get to 10, but I'm like, you know. Are you pick, still doing the dashes on the I'm arm? I'm doing the dashes, and I'm picking up half-empty beers, and I'm still taking pills with it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and uh, and I, so I take two, three-quarter or, or one or two-sip beers at parties. I'd, I'd chug them both. I'd count it as one beer and claim that they were only halfway full. I'd take a double shot. I'd count it as one shot. I mean, it was I was lying to myself, and I'd still basically black out. But at the end of the night, I'd have, I, I, I think I went up to 11 or 12, and I'd show my arm up. I'm like, see, I'm controlling my drinking. I only had, you know, 12. Meanwhile, there's probably like 17 or 18 that I actually had. And I have a bunch of fucking pills up my nose. Right. I remember my friends on, it was August 30th. So the night leading into my birthday, 
And my friends are like, you know, Harrison, do you have your marker? I'm like, it's my fucking birthday. I don't need my fucking marker. So you would like you know? bring your marker out with you wherever you went. <laughs> yeah. It was okay. a joke. That's manageability. <laughs> it was a fucking joke. Barely manageability. And um, and so I didn't have my marker. And uh, <laughs> basically the next thing I know, I, I sort of come to and I'm in a jail cell. What, what, what did you do? I basically ended up like stumbling out of the club. And, uh, and they arrested me. I was incoherent for whatever. And I, and I got arrested and, um, and I'm in jail and I have no phone, no wallet, no keys and no right shoe. And, uh, and I apparently told them while I was drunk that my name was John Doe, (laughs) um, which is really good because there is a mugshot somewhere on Google of me, but it's under John Doe under the millions of others. Right. And so I ended up spending, um, two days in jail and, um, and this was. What are your parents telling you? I mean, so, your so, parents are getting. A, I mean, yeah. So do they, they ever know about any of the uh, suicide they know, attempts? They know about everything. They don't know about the suicide attempts. Mm-hmm. So they knew about this drug and alcohol issue at seventeen. I had an intervention by them. They then knew that summer. I went to the hospital. Um, I think twice for stitches. Um, and they were like, "What the fuck is this random bill for?" You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and so I would tell them, "Why did you need stitches?" I um, I smashed my. You were falling down drunk. Uh, yeah, I I put my hand through a window. Right. Okay. There were so that that was sort of an indication. Like they knew that I had an issue. I would give them these calls my freshman year of college, where it was like me hysterically crying, like I want to I want to die, like I can't, I hate college. You know, it was I love college, I hate college. Very sort yeah. of manic. Uh, this is the hardest part. But I would go weeks without talking to my parents, and I just I because I, I literally could not be sober enough to to call them and say hi, how are you, mom. And my mom would send me texts like, just please call me. Like, let me know that you're okay. And I mm-hmm. wouldn't. And I would just say on Sunday, hi, sorry, really busy weekend studying for finals. <laughs> finals again, the best of me again. Mom, can I have some money? Can you wire $500 into my account? And Because um, you just because didn't want to gear up for that conversation. Couldn't gear up for the conversation. And um, and I needed more money. You know, and, it, and it's not like... I also felt like for me, and I, and I had those conversations, I think I felt like if I didn't have something good to say about what was going on with me, something yes. that I had done, something that I had accomplished, then yes. I didn't really want to share at all. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's... I never thought about it like about it that consciously. Um, that's when I would you check just in. put it. But, um, but yeah, there was always an element of I need to impress my, pa- yeah. my family. Yeah. You know? Um, and I had none of the, what, there was nothing I was doing that was impressive. Um, I flew home in the middle of the night, drunk once in college. I got it blacked out. I got into a fight with a kid on the basketball team and I, was, I did a bunch of Coke and I went to almost like a psychosis and I broke everything in my dorm and I walked into a cab and I said, airport, please. And I went to the airport and I flew home in the middle of the night. My parents come to, and I'm in their kitchen with a black eye. And I'm like, I'm depressed. I need to be on pills. And they're like, oh, my God. Like, you have a fucking black eye. Yeah. And uh, so I, there were there were a bunch of sort of thing, small things that started happening. Finally, I get arrested. and But before I started school, they made me see a drug and alcohol counselor. Okay. And I get arrested. My dad basically has to explain that this kid is not John Doe. This is my son, you know. And so he comes down with my passport. And we end up having a meeting with the, uh, the drug and alcohol counselor. And I was like, listen, like, I'll move out of the fraternity house. Like, I'll get monitored for you. Like, I'll only have a few drinks. And she was like, your son's going to die. Like, he really needs help. And I fought it for six fucking hours in that room. Like, till like two or three in the morning, I kept crying and screaming and crying and screaming. And So, like, do, I mean, okay. I didn't understand. I didn't know anything about recovery. Yeah. Where, where I'm going with this question is, you said you wanted to stop, at least yeah. the pills, right? Yeah. So like, what were you fighting for? These people are trying to sort of help you control it. 
get it under control, get your life under control. So, like, what are you fighting against them so hard for? I think that from a very early age, which I, I think I alluded to a little bit earlier with my humor, I never fit in. I never felt like, I, I think I did fit in, but I never felt like I fit in. And I never felt like I had community and I never felt like I had stable friends. And um, and I in college, really, I wanted it to be that time. I really wanted it to, I wanted to fucking close the door on my past and redefine myself. And I felt like so much of fitting in was was drinking and drugging. It's ironic, right? Because most of my drinking and drugging actually really took off behind closed doors. And I eventually hated being in public. I hated being at parties and all that sort of stuff. uh, Because I because I had to drink socially. Um, I felt too controlled and it it was like a repressed thing. But I think it was a sense of belonging. You know, I didn't want to. So it was like you're taking away my social connector by taking away my drink. For sure. I mean, to put it simply, it was sort of like. And this just came to me. It was sort of like I, I always felt different. And now this is a reason that's saying, oh, I am different. Does because that make I, sense? Because I can't do this. Yeah, because I can't do this. So it's like I've the advertising is on the wall. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think that was really it. Yeah. I knew how much it would isolate me. Mm-hmm. So I come home. And then a week later, I saw like a new addiction specialist, bullshit, whatever. And I shouldn't say bullshit, but a new addiction okay. specialist in Long Island. And she was like, Minnesota or Florida? And I was like, Florida? I'm depressed. Like, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm depressed and I need the beach. <laughs> you know, right. I need to relax. And then in Florida, I, I was lucky. Like, Which one did you go to? It's called Life Skills in Deerfield Beach. Okay. Um, a lot of rehabs there. Lost so many fucking rehabs. And, uh, but, but again, I was really lucky because I actually was done. I, at least at least for the time being i was done enough to be like i'm not going to drink today that that level of done and 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 actually commit you so know how I many mean? days how many days sober what do you mean how many days uh did you stay at the rehab for i was there for 90 days wow yeah i was there for three Were you the youngest one there i was the youngest one there um so i again like i struggled for sure with that first question of how am i an alcoholic take me through like your first take me through a typical day in rehab Typical day in rehab is you wake up, you do laps around the parking lot at 7 a.m. You go to group for maybe an hour or two. Then you go to the gym or we'd, we'd go to the yo- do yoga. Um, I, I lived in, I was in a very cush rehab. Yeah, I was yeah. very fortunate. My parents were sort of like, we'll throw money at this problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, okay. um, and so I would do yoga and then I'd come back. I'd do some therapy. I'd eat lunch. I'd, I had to cook my own lunch. I had to clean my own bed. All these life skills, which is why I think it's called life skills, the rehab, that I didn't fucking have. I didn't. I really didn't. never knew how to take care of myself. I was a spoiled, entitled kid who had a housekeeper growing up and I didn't learn any of this stuff. And um, and so I had to take Did care of friends? myself. Yeah. I always, I always made friends. Um, and so and I, it's co-ed. It is co-ed. <laughs> any girls? <laughs> there were some girls. Uh, in terms of girls in my life, well, meaning like, are you were you like we we talked about this like desire to get laid, and now there's no alcohol, and I've heard people say like people's standards go plummet in rehab because you got to cling to something. Yeah, so I mean, so in terms, it's it's funny you say that. So I ended up in terms of what I clanged cling to. So uh, there were girls. I did end up having a relationship, but at the end of rehab, but I was really fucking serious about getting sober. I really like, I went to an AA meeting and I was like, man, like my life actually could change. Like these people seem happy. You know, I, 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 I drank the Kool-Aid really fucking quickly mm. and thank God for it. And, um, basically what happened was, do you, do you remember it? Was there something that like you heard? Was there someone's story that you heard? Was there like, what made the switch turn from like, I'm fighting this, I'm fighting this, I'm fighting this to suddenly like, I want this. Um, I think it was just the smiles. 
and people looking at me in their in their eyes and 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 once it was explained to me what let that an alcoholic you know i think it's on i'm a little embarrassed that i actually don't know the page right now i think it's on page 51 it talks about the bedevilments mm-hmm. you know the bedevilments that we feel and it's sort of like um you know too much pride depressed anxious you know can't handle social situations all that sort of stuff and i remember somebody reading it to me like that first week and explaining like this this is the alcoholism you know what i mean it's not about like how much you drank you know it's it's like it's lack of control lack of choice and spiritual malady but what does that spiritual malady really mean and it was sort of explained like the bedevilments like that page i think i, I hope i'm right when i say yeah, 51 yeah. that's a big part of it and once i sort of understood that i was like oh my god i actually feel like i belong and that coupled with people looking me in the eyes and, and being like genuinely happy to see me was there something also, and you, you've talked about this, like I this wanting to belong that we all have. For sure. I think you and I probably had it more than others. I think alcoholics have it more than others. And I'm lucky others. in that sense. Yeah. And you're seeking it and seeking it. And whoa, here it is right in front of your face. I mean, dude, so, that's exactly it. And um, I love community. I always joke, like I would fucking love to join a cult. Like I watch <laughs> cult documentaries on Netflix and I'm like, I wish that I was fucking there. You know, I fantasize about living at a kibbutz in Israel and just being part of a farm community and just right. like, I love community. And I think a lot of it is because I didn't feel like I had a lot of it growing up. My friends would come and go all the time in mm. my childhood. And uh, and I had, I really didn't have a good relationship with, I had a tough relationship with my mom, but I really didn't have a strong relationship with my dad. So definitely daddy issues. Um, yeah. But uh but in rehab, I was clinging to something. And uh, and I was really lucky because I was told some speaker came in and he was like, listen, guys, like you're not here to fucking, you know, to, to save your face. You're here to save your ass. And like that simple quote sort of stuck with me. And it was like, I'm sticking with the winners. And everybody's in rehab. Did you went to rehab? I never did. I, sh- never I wish rehab. I had. Yeah. I remember saying that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so most people, as you can imagine, it's sort of similar in AA a little bit if you go to especially beginners meetings, but like nobody's there to get sober. Like they're there because they're forced to be there. And I was sort of forced, but it was a gift. Yeah. I, you know, like there was a part of me that was like, if this is going to happen, I actually will take advantage of it. And I was sort of like, I'll give this my all. And if it doesn't fucking work, I'll fucking kill myself. And I heard this, um, I heard what this guy said about, you know, saving your ass. And there was a guy there who um who's my friend and he was a winner and one morning he found out that i was jewish you know and and i'm like jewish with an emphasis on the ish part Mm -hmm. you know that's how i was raised and um and he asked me if i wanted to wrap to fill in with him you know you know what does that mean to fill in like the uh the leather does that make me more ish than you that i don't know that (laughs) yeah you're a little bit more ish than me oh (laughs) man um it's basically like once you become a quote-unquote like a man in judaism right you're bar mitzvah you're 13 years old you basically you pray a certain way you pray differently and you you pray and there's power in the prayer if it's called a minion 10 or more people but one of the things that you do in that minion is you pray by putting these leather boxes with pieces of the torah right like the holy scripts you know uh, in it you put one on your arm so and it touches your heart and one okay. on your head okay and he asked me if i would do it with him i was probably so i went to rehab um on september 11th um and i um, right around September 21st, um, I was freaking out, you know, and that and that desire I had to stay sober and, and want to get better was real. It, it dissipated, mm-hmm. you know. It really doesn't fucking last. And the, the book talks about it. I was having such a miserable day and such a tough time, and uh, and there was a lot of shame. There was so much shame about my path. And let me just tell you, one of the turning points in my recovery, whenever we, I'm in a step meeting, I talk about this, is. 
you know, we're writing, we're, we're reviewing our, our eight steps, our, 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 uh, excuse me, our fourth step and doing our eight step, right? right? We're picking out, we're thinking about who we're going to make amends to. And the book, the, the sentiment in the big book is basically willing to go to any means necessary to make the amends, even if it means going to jail, even if it means losing your marriage or losing your kids, right? And so for me, I was like, you know what? I, I fucking believe in this shit. You know, this is now a few months later. This is probably December, January of, right. of that year. I was like, I'm going to go for this. I was like, I don't care if this puts me in jail. I believe that I could be happy. Like I, I was starting to see some of the promises a little bit in the program where I was like, nothing external is going to fix me. This is an internal job. Anyway, I be, I had this crazy spiritual experience when I um, can I hear it? Yeah, when I rapped to fill in for the first time. This guy, the only guy who was a quote unquote winner in rehab, you know, in September, he asked me to rap to fill in with him, and and I rap it, and um and I was started crying, hysterically crying, mucus, you know, mucus bubbles and everything, and I'm looking out the window and I'm like, please God, please, like I need a sign, like show me whatever's out there, you know, please show me, I'll be okay, and. It's like, right, I, I emphasize that it's September because it's like fall time. The leaves are gorgeous, right? And I'm looking out the window and it was all of a sudden, it's a very calm day and it, it was wind. It was very windy and the trees started shaking as if they were nodding to me like, yes, you'll be okay. And the leaves start falling. And it was, I felt really connected to the universe and the world in that moment. And I felt like I was being taken care of. And um, what do you think you were crying about? I think that I, I was I really just wanted to be happy. Like I, I so badly, it was, this, it was the reason I clung to an identity when I was a kid. It was the reason I clung to, you know, would cling to a drug. I, I, man, I wanted to be happy so badly. I, I was, was in a meeting yesterday and they were talking about the idea of seeking, yeah. right? Like you don't have to have a God in your life. You don't have to have uh, a higher power or whatever. You don't have to define it. You don't have to say what their characteristics are, but if you just seek it, that's all you need. And at that moment, you were seeking it. Absolutely. It's not that I'm resting on my laurels, but sometimes I'm allowed to rest on my relationship. And my relationship with God is something that's been beautifully cultivated for seven something years. And easily, like that is my favorite part of this program, this the spiritual connection that I right. think is the most interesting part of the program, that coupled with helping people. And I think that I, I, I really feel like it's such a, it's a, it really is a marriage and because it's a marriage, sometimes there are fights, but we're sticking through it, right? We're, right. Not, we're not allowing divorce to happen. And, and so when sometimes... you feel like there are speed bumps, like we'll, we'll use the marriage example, right? Like yeah. you get into a fight. Yeah. Right? So you get into, a, you get you have the feeling where like you feel let down by God, right? Yeah. That is the feeling that I get sometimes. Like yeah. where, what, what is this all about? How do you push through? I mean, I, I think that I talk, oh, this is kind of maybe a little bit nutty and, um, I have very open conversations with God. If I'm in a car or if I'm in a room and alone, I will literally talk to myself, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll even do it on the street sometimes, especially in early sobriety. I'll look like, you know, a, right. a, a crazy guy talking to yeah, himself. Yeah, you can wear earbuds now and it's okay. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I should start doing that. <laughs> Maybe I won't get as many glances. Um, but uh, I really, I have a conversation, you know, the same way that if I got into a fight with my girlfriend, I'd be like, you know, babe, honey, I'm really upset. I'm really upset with the way you treated me or I'm really upset about this or I resent you for this. It's the same sort of thing. It's a relationship. And so I talk about it. What do you think 16-year-old Harrison would say if he heard 26-year-old Harrison saying what you just said? I think he'd be shocked because it's a totally different fucking person. I think he'd be shocked, but I think a, pro a tear would probably roll from his eye because 
I think that in inside, you know, this is the person that I was sort of always meant to be, you know, it's like, maybe you've heard this before, like a sober horse thief is still a horse thief, right? right. Like yeah. there are tons of fucking assholes who are sober. You know, there are tons of crooks who are sober. There are, there are just bad people who are sober. I think that inside I was always a really good kid and I always had a really good heart and I had good, strong character and um, alcoholism took a lot of that away from me. The funny thing is, it's like when I, my mentality was that if I drink and drug in the best, in the right way, then yeah. it'll bring out the best part of me. Yeah, of course. Right? And the the irony is it brings out the worst part of me. And of the best part of me was sitting there the whole time on the sidelines waiting. Yeah. Oh my God. That's, that's spot on, Mike. I, uh, I totally agree. What are the biggest mistakes you think you've made in sobriety? Oh my God. I made so many mistakes. <laughs> All of mine seem to have revolved around dating and relationships. Oh, for sure. Oh my God. Dating and relationships. Um, I, uh, I have other issues, you know, and, and, I'm happy to share this with, sure. with viewers. You know, thankfully, you and I are, are close enough that you know. Uh, I would say my main issues, but my main issues that I've alluded to so far in this podcast is just eating. But absolutely, sex and and pornography that comes with it is a huge part of my story. And um, the mistakes that I've made in sobriety, uh, I'd say the biggest one I ever made at first was I cheated on an exam. You know, and I I'd started this club at Emory. So you went back to Emory? Yeah, I went back to Emory. I like was in my fraternity. I created a uh, an organization called um, Restart, which was basically a collegiate recovery community for kids at Emory who are interested in getting sober. Wow. Um, it was it was unreal. We had a sober house at one point. It was uh, sadly I don't think it's around as of the past year, which kills me. Yeah, you didn't um, like live in the fraternity house though as a sober. Didn't guy, live did in the you? fraternity house, but man, I was I would go to the fraternity house often, and it was it was actually really cool because I when I got sober I became such a sort of honest open book and I loved what I had gotten because of the gifts of sobriety I, I loved being sober and I loved sort of the happiness that I was able to experience in the new life that I had and and just tapping into my authentic self which I feel like I hid for so many years that I would go to parties and I would talk to all these frat bros right and and people who are just very sort of a lot of the kids were entitled. A lot of the kids couldn't access their emotions. A lot of kids followed the traditional man code and would right. hide things and repress things. And But when you're drunk, lucky enough, a lot of that shit comes out and they would come to me. And I was sort of like, I like to think that in many ways I was like a quasi little psychologist or therapist for a lot of these people. And so it allowed me to really access depth in a lot of relationships outside of even people in recovery. Right. But that, um, then that brings up the the topic of like, what is it like as a sober person being around wasted people? Yeah. Um, like you could tolerate that. I find I really cannot. Yeah. So it's, it's hard. It, it depends. Um, it not, it depends. It, but you're so young at that point still. It's hard because I, man, I so badly, what, what does any 19 year old want? I want to fucking dance. I want to party and I want to get laid. I can't party the way I used to, but I love dancing. I love socializing and I, and I love women. Right. <laughs> you know? And so I needed, I felt like I sort of needed to be around that in college. Um, when it would get excessive, I would leave. When people would bring out a tray and a tray of cocaine, I would, there's no fucking reason for me to be in that room. Right. You know, if they're smoking pot, whatever, it, you know, I was sort of... You didn't to want to be like, I could that. still hang. No, no. The, I, That's what I was I, like. I, I was like, yeah, I, that cocaine there, can be around me. I'm Mike, fine. absolutely. There was that in the beginning. But I knew that, like, everything would be lost in a second. I, yeah. I knew myself. I know that I have no fucking self-control when it comes to that. 
you know? I think for me, what kept me away from that stuff was AA was my last stop on the bus. Yeah. Right? Like, I had tried everything. Yeah. And I've talked about the the hypnosis and the acupuncture, the yoga, everything. Right. Nothing could work. And I had this huge fear. I'm like, if this doesn't work, I have nothing. Yeah. Yeah, man. God, do I. I I totally get that. I I totally get that. So that's what kept me in, this fear of, like, this is the only stop left. I think the only reason that I became okay with it was because I really clung, clung, clanged, clinged. I really clinged on. I think on. clung's a word. Clung. Like, so I it clung. sounds awkward though. It does sound fucking awkward. Let's use it though. We'll create it. <laughs> I clung on to this idea, which it talks about in, in the promises in the big book that you, you could be around anything or anyone, not fearing anything or anyone. And, and it, Man, the beauty for me, what's even more beautiful than the ninth step promises or the 10 step promises about being in a state of neutrality between you and a drink, right? And I clung to that. I really fucking believe that if I did everything that the book tells me to do, if I work the steps, if I maintain a relationship with something bigger than myself, if I clean house and I help others and I keep chopping wood and I keep carrying water, then I'm going to have that. And I'm going to always have that as long as I keep working for it. And so that was the beauty that allowed me to sort of go out and experience things. Do I do I like people that are absolutely shit-faced? Absolutely not. A lot of my friends are normal friends, right? They're not one of us. And when they get shit-faced, I'm like, dude, I can't fucking be around you. I, it's yeah. just frustrating. It's not because I want to drink, but it's just like, this is a waste of my time. You're not even going to remember this conversation. And we're barely even having one, yeah. you know? But yeah. I, I certainly don't mind being around people who drink. So I had asked you to bring two topics that you want to talk about today. One of them is you said, how do you define the success? How do you define success today generally and also in recovery? Yeah. What does that mean to you? So success for me growing up was completely an external thing. I I mean, my entire life up until recovery was built upon the premise that something outside is going to fix me. And so if it was a, a fancy car, a fancy job, a large paycheck, a lot of money, um, a, a beautiful, woman. a beautiful woman to surround right. myself with, um, fame and prestige recognition, um, all that sort of stuff. And it's really funny because like some of the, the best days I've ever had in sobriety are always when I feel best about myself. And those days are literally so simple where I, I wake up, I pray, I meditate, I hang out with somebody in the program. Like I do something very peaceful. I do something in nature. Um, and, and so it's, it's sort of like, I'm talking a little bit about happiness too, but so success for me has become this thing where, um, it's purely sort of an inside job and purely being okay with my character at the end of the day. And it's hard, you know, and I, and I pick that topic because I struggle with it, right? Because I'm always going to have an ego, man. I'm always going to have these childhood ideas of what I think one thing meant, you know, and how it's going to conflict with, with what I feel in my heart today. And so I know in my heart that success really means being a good, for me at least, being a good person, um, being there for, you know, in all my relationships, you know, I, the relationships that I choose and the relationships that I've been given. Um, so let me ask you this. So yeah. then like, let's say, you know, you've talked about some of your vices, sugar, porn, sex. Yeah. If you go, if you left here today and you ate, you know, a thing of Sour Patch Kids, you know, is that an uh, unsuccessful day? I wouldn't call it an unsuccessful day. Um, it's unsuccessful from a specific standpoint of was I successful with my eating disorder today, right? Because I know that I have to take care of my eating disorder the way, ta- way I take care of my alcoholism by not eating or drinking. Right. Will you forgive yourself is what I'm okay, asking. I will 100% forgive myself. Um, 
when I talk about success and what I meant it more in that question is just more broadly how I'm defining success in terms of my character, in terms of who I am as a person, because none of that mattered to me. We would talk about success growing up and it was always about external things. It was always about money. It was always about jobs. Mm-hmm. It was always about the school you were going to. Um, and that's not how I'm looking at it today. I think a lot of the beauty is it too is because man, like, and I'm sure you experience this too. The people whose lives I fucking want in AA aren't the people who are the richest or the right. best looking or or president or CEO of this, that, the other. Man, like it's the people who have like tremendous faith. It's the people who, who help people. It's the people who are just like, who are loving and you look at them and there's just like this, this beautiful serenity and peace. And like that to me is success. Right. You know? I know lots of really rich, miserable people. Same dude. You know, and I know poor people in A, or I don't know if they're poor or whatever, but they're not CEOs. Um, yeah. And they have that glow, yeah. right? And and there is something that like I do want that. And I listen. I was able to achieve some things when I was active. I got the apartment that I wanted. I got the toys, you know, the car. I love I, that you're talking about this, by right? the way. <laughs> I, I, I really do. Keep going. I got it. I got the boat. Yeah. And I got the girlfriend that I always thought I wanted my girlfriend to look like. Yeah. You know, because that was really important for me. Yeah. You're right? lucky I got you got that one. That's that's a tough one. <laughs> well, it didn't mean shit. Exactly. You know, it didn't mean shit. I always thought that girl would save me, right? Yeah. Like I wouldn't be using as much because I'd have her. And then what happens like that lasts like two months. And then, of course, what happens is like now I'm like, how do I get out and meet a drug dealer at 10 p.m. on a Tuesday and my girlfriend lives with me? You know, it's tough. Well, I would go to her and be like, "You look like you want ice cream right now," <laughs> and she'd be like, "No, I'm actually fine." I'd be like, "I'm gonna go get you some ice cream," and then I would have to meet the drug dealer, go get the ice cream, come back, right? Run the faucet so I could snort the oxy and not make noise, yeah, and then come back, and now I'm happy, and now I can enjoy her company in peace, yeah. Okay, and then the second topic you want to talk about was sober dating, yeah, which is always interesting, always interesting. So you have a girlfriend now? Do you have a girlfriend? Nikki. How many years? Uh, two years. I met her December 11th of 2017. It's almost two years ish. Okay. When people, they recommend that you don't get into a relationship in your first year of sobriety for various reasons. Yeah. Um, what has, what was your sober dating experience, you know, up until you met your current, your current girlfriend? That's, that's actually a good question. That's how I should have rephrased the question. Basically in the beginning, I was absolutely terrified about talking to women because i thought that the only thing that i had was sort of that i could drink and make people joke a little i could make a joke and you know get people to connect to me that way a little bit but it's so funny like i feel like the most interesting concept for me about dating is like i thought it would be so hard i thought that people would be like oh my god who's this disgusting drug addict you know whatever he's sober like that's bizarre too right and how early on a date or in the in the course of a relationship, do you whip out the knowledge? Hey, I'm I don't drink. It depends on the connection we've got. Because if I have a good connection, I will do it like almost ASAP. Right. You want to know why? Because, and you've said this before. It's a, it's an interesting fact about me. It's not the most interesting fact about me, but um, but I think that it really is. It's a massive part of my life. A massive part mm-hmm. of my life, and it and it reaches. It's the reason why I'm getting a seltzer in line. Truthfully, I love connection i love deep relationships i i love intimacy i really do in sort of every facet of that word i absolutely love it and i think that when i sort of let my guard down and i tell something that's pretty vulnerable mm-hmm. um people tend to open up for sure and i love having a real conversation i mean growing up like you know people always bullshit about sports people or people bullshit about like pop culture 
I was never that good at sports, even though I created an identity sometimes around them. I never followed sports. Um, and a lot of my teenage years, like I didn't have any hobbies. So like, I, I'm not, I don't like bullshitting because I don't, I'm not, I could do it, but I don't enjoy it. Like it doesn't do anything for me. Right. And, um, and so I love, I love just getting to what's fucking real. So how do you know someone actually accused me of this recently yeah. and they said that I was kind of oversharing? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like I was on a date and I, I, I maybe preemptively or too soon brought out the fact that I, I was in recovery. No, that's happened and, to me, man. And she said like – she gave the uh, – she basically let it be known that like I kind of overshared. Yeah. That's happened to me before. And the way I sort of take it is, okay, this person's clearly not for me. I want to talk about the step work, and that goes to the second topic I want to talk about. And I heard this recently, and I loved it. And it was a young woman, and she said, this program isn't for people that need it. This program isn't for people that want it. People do it. It's for people that do it, right? And and like whenever I get the opportunity to read how it works in a meeting, and I get to the part about half measures availed us nothing, that part always rings true because I think like, where am I in that? And the answer, truthfully, is usually half measures. Yeah. So, like, w- tell me about, like, when you went through your step work. Let's yeah. talk about your amends. You talked about the amends you didn't make. What sure. was the most profound one you made? Um, most profound one I, I ever made was pro- was uh, was just to my parents. Um, those were the, also the first amends that I made. Um, coming home and basically telling them, you know, listing out my harms. Um and and basically creating my my whole not my whole life but like a, a big chunk of my childhood was spent behind closed doors and being very defiant and having a lot of animosity towards my family and when i sort of made the amends it, there was just a shitload of honesty it was all honesty right. you know and um and i was able to sort of walk through everything and and nothing was a secret anymore, you know. And um, and to be able to do that, and for them to be able to accept me, how did they and, react to it? Uh, they cried. Um, they cried. Um, and and first of all, that's a powerful thing, right? To see to see the impact that you're sort of having live, and knowing that they were crying probably for you know two three years, you know, because of what was happening to their son and losing their baby and and all that sort of stuff, and the and the mean shit that I would do to them. Um, but like working through that with my parents was powerful. Um, but how about you? I think the most powerful one, and I've talked about this was to my best friend's wife, you know, I don't think I heard you talk about that. Okay. So when I, I had made a horrible, horrible wedding speech, the, the amends, this is a longer story, but after that, right. There was other things like I never liked her. Not because of anything that had to do with her. I didn't like her because she was taking my friend away from me. Mm. So I was mean to her. And like I did, I was disrespectful and like I didn't acknowledge her as like a significant part of his life. Mm. And when after that, like I, it's almost like I think she always said to him and I've actually had this confirmed after the fact, like, why are you friends with this guy? And and be, and and when I did that thing at the wedding, it finally gave her the ammo to be like, see, I told you like he's a piece of garbage. And so those calls, like we would talk like three, four times a week. It just started to like dwindle, dwindle, dwindle until like there were no more calls. Mm. And like I was like crushed. And when I finally got sober. I have such a similar experience with friends. But you do? Going, yeah. 
And when I finally got sober, like I was able to, he's a doctor. And so I was able to call him and I I literally would ask him for medical advice, like how to do this. And like we started, the relationship started to upswing when I would literally call him every day, like being like, I'm going out of my mind, right? Nine months later. While you're getting sober. Yes, like early sobriety. Like I'm like, you know, I'm like kicking from pills and all that stuff. When it was finally time to make my amends, I knew my first amends would not be to him, but be to her. And so we went to dinner, the three of us, and my friend goes to the ATM machine. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to have like 10 minutes alone with her right now. Let's do it. And I remember I said to her, you know, the thing you're supposed to say, which is, you know, I really regret a lot of things that I did in the past. And I explained to her, I said, I was mean to you and I had nothing to do with you because yeah. you took my friend away from me. Uh, I made a horrible speech at your wedding that I regret. And, um, you know, I'm sorry. And, you know, I hope my actions are different now. And if there's anything I'm leaving out, let me know. And I thought she was going to say, Mike, it was fine. It was no big deal. And that's not what she said. What did she say? She said, Mike, when I first met you, I never understood why my husband was friends with you. She goes, actually, I hated you. She said the words, I hated you. And I was like taken aback still, you know. And she goes, but I, I see it now. She goes, I see it now. And as she says, I see it, she said, I see it now, she starts to cry. And now I'm crying. And my friend comes back from the ATM and the conversation I'm going, and he sees it. And now he comes back and the two people at the table are crying and he has no idea why. And obviously I told him what had happened later, but that for sure was the most powerful amends. And like, he's my best friend today. You know, like I got that relationship back. So let's go back to, we don't, it's not for people that need it. It's not for people that yeah. want it. It's for people that do it. Yeah. So like what, how does that apply to like your program on a daily basis, weekly basis? Yeah. I mean, uh, what it, my program looks a lot different than it looks a lot different this year versus last year and the one versus the year before. And certainly when I first got sober, but that was said to me very early on, you know, it doesn't matter how much you need. It doesn't matter how much you want it. You know, it's, you have to actually do the work. And I right. firmly believe that what that work looks like to me is, in all areas of my life, not just helping another alcoholic. I, I really do try and it's a I fail at it, but it's a it's a goal. It's a bar that I try to hit. I try to not make it about me. I try to do things for other people. And if I can't reach out to another person, I will sit there and I will pray about that other person. You know, I try to I, I mean it's it's holding the door, it's smiling for an, an extra second, it's that extra minute on a hug. It's it's things like that where I'm not trying to think about What's this doing for me right now? It's how can I make this other person feel good? How can I make their day a little bit better? So that's just easy to do, by the way, for me when I'm in a good spiritual place. It's when I have to grit my teeth through it, but I yeah. still do it anyway. Yeah. But I give myself like the more like that was the right thing to do. Yeah. And but and by the way, that that fucking will pump me up. That will get me so quick out of feeling yes. shitty. Yes. You know what I mean? When I know it's the right thing to do and I, I yeah. still did it. God damn, like I'm fucking good. Like when you leave and like you're you decide like I don't want to hold this door open an extra five seconds, but I do see that person coming, screw it, yeah. I'm gonna do it. Yeah. To me it's not like you need to go to four meetings a week, you need to be sponsoring four people, you need to it, sobriety doesn't look to me like that you need to call your sponsor every day it doesn't look maybe that that's what you need when you're going through the steps for the first time but it's a very different experience today it's basically having just having the principles of aa practicing these principles in all our affairs having that infiltrate my existence i would love to say what you just said and i there there is one expression in aa that does not apply to me yeah. And that's the one about like wearing it like a loose garment. Ah, man. I wish you were in the car yesterday with me and John. We spoke about this for two hours. Okay. I can't do that. Yeah. I have to wear it like a freaking trench coat. 
if I want to see the real benefits in my life, yeah, I see them when I'm like rigorously doing it. And yeah. like, I hold myself really accountable to it. Like I have to view my AA meeting as like a doctor's appointment that I can't miss. Yeah. You know, and when I do like a 30 and 30 and like, I'll do that with friends sometimes be like, let's do it. Let's hold each other accountable. We text each other. Like, did you do it? Yeah. Are you behind? Yeah. I'm one behind. I'll double up tomorrow. There is something that happens over the course of those 30 days. And I really do feel good. Yeah, for sure. And it's great while you're doing it. But the issue with that is that there's shame involved if you don't. And that's where the wear life like a loose garment has to come in. Because, man, like if I if I held, my, held myself to that principle, while that's all great and everything, and I've had the same goals as you in sobriety, like, man, I, I there have been so many times, you know, you know about me and I have like all these medical issues with my headaches and everything right. and how much I'm working. Like, I can't go to meetings. I can't go to meetings all the time. I, I really can't. Right. You know, and I have exams that I was studying for. Like, I could oftentimes only go to one or two a week. It's kind of the truth. Right. Right. With balancing, you know, a relationship as well and other things, you know, um, it's just it's just sort of the truth. And so if I held myself to the standard of I have to do this, I have to do that. Right. I'm going to sacrifice my sleep, which but I can't you can do, do all anymore. the other things. Listen, one of the steps, there's nothing that says in the steps like we made a meeting. No. So, but it's just right now, three and a half years, you know, that's what I need. Yeah. Best piece of sober advice you give to your sponsees or newcomers? Um, don't quit before the miracle happens. It's, you know, it's really that simple. Like I, I remember going to a meeting once and uh, I was like finally working the steps. Right. And so I'm like smoking a cigarette with a guy outside of the meeting and, um, and he's like, well, what step you want? I'm like, well, we haven't really gotten to the steps yet. And, and he's like, man, you don't even know how fucking good it's going to get, you know? And, and I want to be like, fuck you. Like, you know, I'm not getting drunk anymore. I'm not hung over. I'm not, you know, I'm not getting, you know, getting yeah. arrested, blah, 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 like all this sort of shit. But the truth is like, he was right. Like I hadn't really done any internal work on myself. And like, the truth is like, I get jealous when I see newcomers, you know? Like I really do because of like, what's coming. Just because like the growth that you're going to experience in the in as soon as the next two months or as or as however long it takes you to get through those steps and start working with another alcoholic, man. Like you're you're never going to experience growth like that ever again. At least I don't think so. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's it's unreal, and you don't like that. And that's just the truth. You really don't know how good it's going to get. My thanks again to Harrison T. for coming on the show. Again, you've been listening to Keep Coming Back, real stories of sobriety and recovery. If you like the content, leave a review, leave a quick rating, much appreciated. Keepcomingbackpodcast at gmail.com is a place you can write me for any questions. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.